собой шли вдвоем, а фонарики горели. И при виде их на момент прийти, и сердца наши замляли. Hello and welcome to the SRB podcast. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. The SRB podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and members of the SRB Table of Ranks, who give monthly contributions from anywhere between $5 to $25. If you'd like to support this podcast, go to my Patreon page at patreon.com slash blog or to srbpodcast.org and find that Patreon button and join the Table of Ranks. So, first off today, an announcement. Um, after next week's episode, that's not this episode, but next week's episode, the SRB podcast is going on hiatus. I've been doing this show for about seven years, and I'm burnt out, and I've grown quite bored with the interview-only format, and I'd like to do some more narrative audio and storytelling episodes. Now, interviews aren't going away. They'll always be part of the show. Uh, the only thing that might change is how I curate them and present them to you. I'm also planning on rebranding the podcast. I've never been comfortable with the SRB podcast name, and I've wanted to change it for a while. I just never really took the time and the plunge to redesign everything and come up with a, a snazzier name. Um, so rethinking things, the way the podcast runs, what it does, what its mission is, is something I'm going to spend some time doing. So one more episode, and then it's goodbye for a while. My tentative plan as of now is to return in early February with an all-new named podcast with a whole different format. So um, until then, one more episode, and then something new will come your way in a couple of months. Now, this week's episode is with Christian Raffensperger on Kiev and Rus. It's a topic that I've wanted to do for a while, but as usual, other things got in the way other obligations, other interviews. But this is a really important topic, especially considering the war in Ukraine, because both Russia and Ukraine claim their origins in Rus. But also, you know, I think another important aspect is, as Christian stresses repeatedly in this, in our conversation, is how we understand Rus in the wider medieval world has implications for how we divide East and West, how we understand the development of these societies in Eastern Europe and where we placed Eastern, Eastern Slavic society within the larger civilizational frameworks. Um, this is a, a topic we talk about a lot in this interview and I, I hope you gain a lot of insight. Um, I certainly did. Christian Raffensperger is the Kenneth E. Ray Chair in the Humanities and Professor of History at Wittenberg University. He's published several books on the history of Kievan Rus and medieval Eastern Europe, including Reimagining Europe, Kievan Rus in the Medieval World, 988 to 1146, Ties of Kinship, Genealogy and Dynastic Marriage in Kievan Rus, The Kingdom of Rus, and his final book, Conflict, Bargaining, and Kinship Networks in Medieval Eastern Europe. Christian's books present the Rus state not as a principality or as a collection of principalities, which frankly I have to say is how I have taught it to this point, but as, another, as one of the realms in the wider medieval Europe. Um, I also encourage you to check out his Rusian genealogical database, which presents a new genealogy of the Rusian royal family, or the Rurikids, and their connections with other families throughout Europe. So, here's Christian Raffensperger. 
Пожить-то хочется, я весь горю тебя, молю, будь моей женой. So, it, it, like I said, it's really nice to talk to you. Um, it's great to be able to, you know, talk about Kiev and Rus, especially since, you know, unfortunately, because of the war, people are interested, but at least people, more people are interested. And I'm assuming that you've come, a, you've experienced that too. But my first question to you is, you know, you know, so few people nowadays work on anything early modern, Russia, the region, Eurasia, Eastern Europe. What got you interested in Kiev and Rus? Yeah, so actually it goes all the way back to childhood, if I can. Uh, you know, I was a kid who played with knights and castles and, and was very interested in that. Um, and then I was in high school when the Soviet Union began to fall apart. And we ended up with a teacher from St. Petersburg who was not a teacher, but she was interested in teaching Russian. And so she taught us Russian. And I took that in addition to Spanish in high school. Um, you know, we had to have a, a gym teacher sit in the back of the room because he was certified. Uh, and so she taught us Russian and she wasn't used to teaching. So we just conversed. And so my conversational Russian advanced pretty quickly. And my grammar still to this day is not very good. Um, but so I had parallel interests in, in Russian stuff uh, and in medieval stuff. And then I went to college and you know, I pursued Russian and I pursued history, but they weren't connected until I took a class on the Vikings uh, from Michael Jones at Bates College. And we learned about the Vikings in Eastern Europe and just poof, my two interests came together and it, I ended up writing my undergraduate thesis on Rus and I became very interested. And, uh, you know, actually, uh, then I graduated and I forgot all about it. Went and worked at a business uh, for about three years, was very unhappy and thought, you know, what, what made me happy? And what made me happy was when I was studying Rus and learning about that and one thing I did like about my job, I was in sales, was I liked talking to people about my ideas and trying to convince them of my ideas. So I put those two things together and I went to graduate school at the University of Chicago and people were nice enough to let me study this esoteric subject of, of medieval Rus. And here I am. Well, I mean, it's great. It's great that you're here because, um, you know, what, from what I understand, you know, and this, this is from conversations and reading and, and even friends who, who dabbled in this area is... There are challenges to dealing with this period of history and this particular place. Um, so what, what challenges do you see in terms of researching, but also writing the history of Kiev and Rus? Um, you know, source availability is the opposite of a challenge. It's something that we absolutely have, and I love that. Um, the problem, the real challenge is getting people to read it. Medieval history is so often about Western Europe. The norms are created for Western Europe. And so anything that does not fit the pattern, particularly the pattern of England, is viewed as different and other. And certainly we are viewed as different and other working in Eastern Europe. So if we can just get those Western medievalists to read our work, that's half the battle because then they'll see those comparisons. They'll see those similarities. But, but breaking through is hard. You go to Kalamazoo, you do a panel on Eastern Europe or Eastern Europe and Byzantium, and the audience is entirely your people. Right. You don't see that medievalist who works on the Loire or, or uh, works on York or something like that. We really need to get people looking at a broader medieval Europe so that we can change the way we structure the medieval idea uh, to, to integrate Eastern Europe. 
Definitely. And and what about, I mean, it. Uh, what about that? You said that there is plentiful sources, but do you, is there a challenge in terms of like, you know, from what I understand in early, doing early modern or even medieval history in, in Europe, that the sources in terms of like daily life tend to be quite great in terms of doing social history. Is, is there a comparable amount of material about daily life for this period or... Do you have to some somehow do like uh, I don't know what to call it, but imaginative interpretations, let's say. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a great question. I mean, what I meant was not that we have so many sources that, but we have access to the sources. So I don't need to go to Moscow to Ergada to dive through charters, right? Um, but part of that's because exactly what of what exactly what you're saying, uh, we don't have charters, uh, and so we don't have that evidence that we need to comb through for the minutiae of daily life. You know, apart from the birch bark letters and things like that, which are you know wonderfully published uh, on Gramati. Uh, but we do have sources that have been published, and in fact, in my current book project, uh, I did. Uh, something about sources and and I note the preservation of sources in England and then in the German Empire and then in Poland and then in Rus in the 12th century and it is a declining number and it's a pretty steep decline even from England to Germany and then Germany to Poland and then Poland to Rus but but England again sets our normative trend where we've got pipe rolls and we've got local records and all of these things and we view that as what we should have but in fact that's not what we have for the vast majority of Europe. And so, I, you know, you, you've said this already about this, and this is something I wanted to get to later, but perhaps we should just dive into some of it now, is you you are writing against, or at least you're trying to convince people to not use Western Europe as the norm and then place, say, Kievan Rus or even the medieval, medieval Russia, Muscovy, even to a large extent, outside as some sort of other. Can you talk about that that problem more and and how you're addressing it? Absolutely. I mean, if we just look at a couple topics I I care a lot about, like titulature titles. Uh, I wrote a short book, The Kingdom of Rus, making the argument that the Rusian ruler's title should be king. It's Kinyaz uh, in in Slavic, and Kinyaz is typically translated as prince. However, when we look at the labels for the ruler of Rus in Latin, it is uniformly rex. And we translate Rex uniformly as king. And so we end up with a situation where, uh, for instance, James Brundage has a, gr a great translation of Henry of Livonia, an early 13th century chronicle from the Baltic. And Henry of Livonia talks about the Rex of Novgorod and the Rex of these different cities. And Brundage translates it duly as king. But then he adds a footnote saying, well, you know, Henry calls him a king, but really he's a prince. And this dramatically lowers the title that was utilized by the source at the time. If we go back to what Kenyaz means, it shares a, a root with Koninger, with Kuning, the Anglo-Saxon, and even with our modern king. The translation as Kenyaz actually goes to, you, keep men, you, you have mentioned Muscovy in early modern Russia, right? It goes back to there and the arrival of English merchants in the time of Ivan the Terrible. And so that's not a medieval phenomenon. It's just one that's read back into time. And it's actually good citations by modern scholars that's perpetuating this problem. So titles is one big issue. The other thing with titles is that there are multiple rulers in Rus. Uh, in fact, 
Wilhelm, a uh, 12th century chronicler uh, in Northern Europe, says, uh, Nam plure ibes rege sunt, there are many kings there, referring to Rus. He doesn't care. He's just saying there are many kings there. But we've identified king in English with monarch in English, which means sole ruler. And so we think that you can't have a king if there are many. But in fact, there is co-rulership throughout Europe. Um, the French scholars have tried to claim it for themselves, saying the Capetians invented this. Um, but we see co-rulers in a variety of places. And, and we also, of course, now need to integrate queenship into this study, too. Uh, you know, if we were to look at Portugal, for instance, Afonso Enriquez, the first king of Portugal, you know, he's the king, his mother is a queen, but his wife is also a queen and his daughter is also a queen. He actually has multiple daughters, all with the title queen. Right? And so this is a different way of thinking about titles. We could do the same thing for succession, right? It's not all about primogeniture. Primogeniture is slowly spreading from west to the rest. Um, it's really about lateral and collateral succession in many other areas, or even about choice, right? Not just in the German empire. So there are a lot of these things that are, um, if we look away from England as the center, and we try and look at what's going on in the vast majority of the territory of medieval Europe, we see that there are commonalities that make England look not normative, but really quite abnormal. Let me let me push this a bit because you know somebody who who isn't deep into the weeds on the, the various titles and successions and rulers of this period and of these this this region. Why do these titles matter? Like, why is it does it matter if we call you know them a prince or a king? What are you trying to get at with this? You know, just take that example. Why does that difference matter? It matters a lot in terms of perception and hierarchy. Uh, we equate prince as a son of a king, uh, thus it is a lesser title. Uh, and I want the kingdom of Rus to be recognized as such and the ruler of Rus to be a king so that he maintains in modern scholarship and modern conversation the place that I firmly believe he held in the medieval world, which is as an equal. The misidentification of the meaning of these titles, does that, do, you, do you see that as leading to a, a misunderstanding of the way uh, the system runs and the system is ruled? A hundred percent. And it leads to a littling or belittling of these other areas that are not West. Uh, they do not have the core argument for Westernness, which is centralization. So the government should get more centralized over time under one ruler, and areas that are decentralized or decentralizing are not as good as those that are centralizing during this time. So let's talk, where did these, these Rusian people come from? What are the origins of this kingdom? Well, they're Scandinavians, and the sources are really quite clear on this, that they're Scandinavians most likely coming from eastern Scandinavia, modern-day Sweden, uh, down the eastern European river systems looking for silver, amber, furs, and slaves. Uh, this leads them to the Volga Bulgars. It leads them down to the Caspian. It also leads them down the Dnieper River Valley to Constantinople and the Byzantines. And so this is really the origin of this first polity in Eastern Europe among these river systems is as uh, traders and trading posts who are creating little rump states for themselves and eventually are united under a dynasty that we usually call Rurikids or Rurikovici, although typically Don Ostrovsky and I call it uh, the Volodymyrovici after Volodymyr Sviatoslavich, the Christianizer.
who is actually the person who everybody traces their descent to. But how do they establish, you know, there are people who are already living there, right? When they when they come down in their trading post. So why do they they end up settling or even establishing a kingdom around modern day Kiev? Uh, wealth uh, would be the main answer. It's a good place to gather resources from the multiple rivers coming together around the Dnieper and to transmit resources from the north because there's a good portage point at Smolensk uh, to get from the upper river systems down to the Dnieper River Valley and then take them down to Constantinople and to sell in the Byzantine territory. Of course, the uh, earliest source we have or the main source we have for Rus is the Povest of Remenikliet, which is often translated as the tale of bygone years. Uh, it talks about Kiev being a site that Andrew, uh, the apostle Andrew, notes when he travels there. And so he's already blessed this as a holy place. It will eventually come to be the center of a kingdom. You know, you, you've already spoken a little bit about this in terms of the role, you know, the issue of, of the titles. Can you go into more? How is this this kingdom ruled? You know, you have a king, but then you have a it's a it is a, a fairly decentralized system, if I remember my history correctly. Um, so how how does the the, the government, such as it is, fun, function? Yeah, so there's a king in Kiev, and he is the paterfamilias of the clan. Uh, he is also really primus inter pares, so he's first among equals. And so we have a situation where, you know, Volodymyr Svetoslavich, let's say, or his son Yaroslav, places rulers in these other towns uh, around Rus, and then they are still the head of the family, and they are the head of the clan. Taxes or tribute are remitted to Kiev. We have examples of this, and the ruler in Kiev can uh, renegotiate those arrangements so they can move a subordinate ruler from one town or city to another town or city. They can take that rule away from people. They can give them new territory, and they can call them together to fight against exterior enemies. All of those things are things that a king does. Right. It, really, the issue is that these other rulers bear the same title, Kinyas. Uh, we, if, if we called them dukes or counts, uh, Rus in the 11th century looks just like France in the 11th century, where we've got uh, a king in Paris who rules over a particular territory, the Ile-de-France, and then there are a variety of other territories that are theoretically subordinate to him, but you know, the rulers also have their own power. Sometimes I think when, when we talk about this period, uh, we we tend to imagine communication flowing, and we tend to flowing quite easily and timely, and we tend to collapse space, and we don't really consider in in many respects like these are I would imagine fairly isolated or autonomous in terms of the forms of rule. And this is true. This is true around Europe, right? This isn't just Rus that we're talking about. There are a lot of territories where rulers are relatively independent from one another simply because of the logistics of trying to manage territories in the pre-modern world. How does the the king uh, make all of this stick together and not completely decentralized? And maybe another one of his, you know, sons decides to go his own way. Well, certainly we do see that sometimes. I mean, even Yaroslav, who's called, you know, the wise, which, by the way, is a more modern title, not a medieval one. Um, Yaroslav is going to rebel against his father, Volodymyr Svetislavich. And, and when Volodymyr Svetislavich dies, he's preparing for a war against his own son because Yaroslav refused to send him taxes. 
So yeah, sometimes this does happen, um, but family and really this larger clan is what keeps it together. And we will see increasing circumstances in the 12th century, for instance, where multiple heads of the subordinate families of the clan will meet to help decide on things like punishments. And, and, how, does, and how does succession work, the transfer of power? Typically, we talk about it as a collateral succession system where it runs from uh, the son, uh, the firstborn son of the ruler, and then the secondborn son of the ruler, and then the thirdborn son of the ruler, and so on. When we exhaust the sons of the ruler, it then ratchets back, and I'm going to date myself here and say kind of like a typewriter, um, to the son of the first son. Right. Um, and, and so that's how it works is if you think about it as a just a lateral line rather than a vertical line, that's what we're seeing in terms of succession. Of course, there are other caveats. For instance, if your dad ruled in a city, Kiev being the main example, you can inherit and rule in Kiev. But if your dad dies before ever inheriting Kiev, you're out. You have, you have no chance of inheriting Kiev. You can rule your local city just fine that he ruled, but it's all about where your dad and your grandfather ruled that allows you to claim that. And, and what, but, you know, this is interesting. I mean, this lateral succession, I mean, first, I, I, how, how common is this in this time period uh, throughout the medieval world? Quite common. I mean, if we look at Denmark in the 11th century, we have a succession of about five brothers who inherit the throne one after another. Um, and then this continues into the 12th and begins to cause problems. And actually, some of the problems are similar to what we're seeing in Rus, which is also interesting because they also marry into the Russian royal family as well. So we've got Russian princesses uh, who are helping shape the, the future of Denmark. You know, you know, looking at it, thinking about this, I mean, maybe I'm I'm imposing too many kind of modern concepts, but this type of succession, you know, it looks like a recipe for civil war, <laughs> where where the the brother line, say the brother of the kings, compete against each other, and then of course I would imagine the sons. There's also gen a lot of generational conflict and generational warfare. Uh, it's it kind of seems like a recipe like built to disaster. Yeah, and that's absolutely how it's typically viewed uh, in modern scholarship. And I mean, one of the things I would really simply reiterate is this is what's going on in the vast majority of places. And even our, our England example of centralization doesn't actually work that way. I mean, the 12th century in England is marred by a period that's typically called the anarchy, uh, which is when uh, Empress Matilda wars against her nephew uh, for control of the uh, the Kingdom of England. What do we know about these people? Their culture, you know, religion. You know, you know what, what? If we wanted to write a social history, let's say, what do we know about them? One of the interesting things is if we really dig into the sources we do have, we can draw out a lot of information. Uh, for instance, we've got those birch bark documents we were talking a little bit about earlier that give us a really interesting slice of life. Uh, an article I wrote but, but haven't found a home yet for is about pigs, uh, pigs in, in Roost, because I read Jamie Kreiner's books about pigs in the Latin West, and I thought, well, you know, what's going on with pigs in Roost? And I read through birch bark letters, and, you know, we even have information and, you know, I don't know if this is a family friendly podcast or not, but, you know, one of the birch bark letters says that so-and-so is having sex with his neighbor's pigs. Um, <laughs> and it goes on to say, again, 
<laughs> and so this is an itu- an interesting situation where, okay, so we know about this guy. We even have his name. You know, a thousand years later, we know that so-and-so had sex with pigs. So we can draw out some of this information. Um, getting at the law codes, the law codes have really interesting bits of information. Um, the Hypatian Chronicle has a, a really great story about how um, – the ruler of Vladimir and Vladimir Suzdal, he and his wife send their eight-year-old daughter off to be married, and they follow her for three days on the trip crying because they're losing their daughter. She's going off to this faraway land. All right. And so, I mean, this, they, they really, we see this caring coming through for caring for your daughter who you've arranged to marry and, and go away. And that's important, but you still, it hurts your heart to lose her. What is your, you know, I, I like to ask people this, especially if you're doing topics that, that I don't know too much about. What is the source, and all the research and writing that you've done over the years, is there a source that just sticks with you uh, that you refer to, you know, with, maybe when people ask you like, so what do you do with these, like, who are these people? Or in class that you tell students about that really kind of captures something for you? A primary source or a secondary source? Yeah, a primary source. Uh, it's got to be the PVL, the Povas Brem Nicolet. I have a copy next to me in my office here at work. I have a copy next to my computer in my office at home. I have read it through, I can't tell you how many times, and yet I still have it right next to me to open up and look things up. I still read it and find new things. You know, when my brain is working in different ways over the last 20 years of doing this, I see things that I didn't see before. And so I... I hmm. And what is this? Text. Uh, it is our, our main source for medieval Rus. It was written probably in the early 12th century, potentially compiled out of earlier records. We certainly see interpolations of Byzantine chronicles, but also maybe early Rusian chronicles, potentially also copies of treaties with the Byzantines from the 10th century. And even though it's written in the early 12th century, it's only extant in copies from the 13th. Um, but this is what gives us the whole history of the Rurikids, the foundations of Kiev, the foundations of Novgorod, um, all of our history of Yaroslav the Wise, those sorts of things come from the PVL. So, so this, is the pro- this is the primary chronicle, essentially. 100%. Is that, this is, is the primary correct? chronicle. That's right. Right. I remember reading this, this old, uh, I think, Basil Davidson translation of it. <laughs> The one I have here still is the Samuel Hazard Cross uh, English translation, although Don Ostrovsky has done a great volume that brings together the various uh, redactions and codices to see what it might have looked like uh, at the time. And and I know the Harvard Ukrainian Research Institute's putting out uh, a new English translation, which will just be brilliant to have. And wh- why do you go back to this? Like, what do you, you, you know, you said that you, after years, you see new things that you didn't notice before. Or maybe you have a different, you know, view of things based on the, the knowledge you accumulate. Why, why this, what do you find in this text? What are some of the things that stand out to you repeatedly or even new? This is our one big source for the 11th century, which is the century I care the most about and work the most with. And so it is the source that we're mining and mining and mining for material. And, you know, I read it again and I see co-rulership language. Um, You know, there's a a moment where Oleg Svetislavich, who gets defamed uh, for for being the bringer of woe, and he says, um, you know, we can't stand against four right? We can't stand against four other rulers. And, and this is an interesting acknowledgement of these people uh, and how they viewed rulership. 
specifically, you know, we also see these family councils that I was talking about earlier, where the multiple heads of family get together to try and adjudicate difficulties. We see mentions of these uh, governmental offices that, that we see in the Novgorod Chronicles, like the Veche and the Tsiatsky and things like that. We see just ancillary mentions sometimes in the PVL uh, that we can correspond. And, you know, I wrote a piece uh, recently for an edited volume I'm doing. It's called How Medieval Europe Was Ruled is the volume. And I look at Rus and Rusian governance, which you've asked about, and I look at it through the PVL, the Primary Chronicle, the Novgorod Chronicle, and the Ruskaya Pravda, the Law Codes. Because those three things tell us very different stories about what's going on in terms of governance. And it's only by really putting them together that we can get one complete picture. One of the things that uh, has allowed for this separation of Kiev and Rus with the wider European or medieval world is uh, the fact that they convert to orthodoxy. Talk about, and, and of course, you know, especially today, this issue of the claims over orthodoxy and the claims of the spiritual origins of both, say, the Ukrainian and also the Russian state uh, are around this moment of conversion. Talk about this or this conversion story and, and you know, and the, the myths, but also what do we know about from the sources about it? You're exactly right. I mean, this is one of the things that allows Western medievalists to write off uh, Eastern Europe. And in fact, even in you know Barbara Rosenwein's, Rosenwein's Medieval Europe textbook, which is very good otherwise, you know, she notes the moment of conversion to orthodoxy and says, and you know, and now Russia's out of the picture of medieval Europe. Um, and so this is a real problem for us. And I think our problem is much like I said before, one of perception. We still, even though scholars have disproved this, we still view there uh, being a division in Europe as of 1054, a schism between East and West that's never bridge. And yet if we actually look at what's going on in medieval Europe, we see all of these ties. We see clerics going from West to East and East to West. We see people from Novgorod going all the way to Santiago de Compostela in the northeastern part, uh, pardon me, northwestern part of the Iberian Peninsula um, on pilgrimage and bringing back these shell uh, pilgrimage tokens. Isislav Yaroslavich, when he's exiled as ruler of Ru Rus, usurped by his own brothers, he and his family go first to Poland, and then they go to the German Empire. Uh, in the German Empire, they appeal both to Henry IV, the German emperor, but they also appeal to Pope Gregory VII in Rome, with whom Henry IV is having some controversy. And in fact, Pope Gregory VII endows the kingdom of Rus on Isislav via his son Yarapolk in exchange for fidelity to the papacy and sends emissaries to help him get his throne back. You know, there's no idea there that this should be an ecclesiastical divide. A couple generations later, we see Yevpraxia, the daughter of Vesyevlad Yaroslavich, the king of Rus, marrying that same emperor Henry IV and then siding with the papacy against him. She goes around Europe and speaks to councils of bishops about how terrible her husband Henry was and about how good the Pope is. And after this is all over, she goes back to Rus, becomes a nun, and gets a burial in the Kievan Caves Monastery, the holiest monastery in Rus. She gets her own chapel. And after the famous uh, Princess Olga, she gets the second most lines of anyone in the PVL. 
So there's no there's no perception of her as having betrayed orthodoxy or betrayed Rus by going and working with the papacy. So, I mean, we just really have a fundamental problem with how we view medieval history through an anachronistic lens. And talk about this this origin story of conversion uh, and what we know and, and what myths there are. The main part of the story is that Volodymyr converted with Byzantium and thus became Byzantine Christian. And I would say in this period, this late 10th century, there's Christianity. There's not really Byzantine or Latin Christianity, and clerics are already arguing, but for the secular population, they don't see it. And so Volodymyr converts, but even when he converts his population by driving them into the Dienapa River, he does it with clerics from Kherson, a city that he's recently captured, and with clerics that are brought with uh, Anna, Portragenita, whom he marries. So he's not having a bishop from Constantinople who's taking charge of this. And, and we don't even know precisely who the first metropolitan is in Rus, who's assigned by Constantinople. Certainly it's part of their ecclesiastical sphere, but we even have notices in late chronicles like the Naconian Chronicle that there are papal emissaries going to Volodymyr at this time bringing relics, uh, particularly relics of St. Clement, uh, who was a pope who was uh, exiled onto the Black Sea coast, to try and woo him into the larger papal sphere. And, and you know, later in the 11th century, we see Pope Urban II negotiating with the Byzantines and uh, with the Russians, and the Russians bringing in uh, new saints' lives that are not incorporated into Byzantium. So we have, it, it, you know, the, the, again, going back to the stereotype, is that this region, you know, what is today modern Ukraine, modern Russian Federation, is isolated from the West in the, the medieval period. Um, and everything flows from that. But you've already pointed out you have trade ties. You have religious ties. And then you briefly mentioned you have marital ties. And I know you've done a lot of genealogical research on the Russian dynasty. So talk about the importance of kinship and marriage, and particularly how that allows for further integration of this Russian kingdom with the wider, you know, quote unquote, Europe. Absolutely. Well, first, I'd like to mention uh, the MAPA Digital Atlas project, where you can see a lot of my research online, freely available. Uh, and that's a, a really worthwhile way to play with that material and look at the details. And you can just Google the HURI, H-U-R-I, MAPA project, M-A-P-A. Um, but the thing about dynastic marriages that I like so much is that it's people. These are people who travel all over Europe, and they've often been written out of history because generally it's women who leave the kingdom and go somewhere else. You know, Vernadsky in his famous Kiev in Russia dismisses all of these marriages in about a sentence and a half. Um, whereas, you know, I've written hundreds of pages <laughs> about all these same marriages. Uh, and, and the reason is really these women, because, oh, what can one woman do, especially when she's a minor, as uh, is often the case. But these women are themselves trained as diplomats. There's a ton of evidence about this from other places in Europe that we can apply. Uh, but also they don't go alone. 
these people go with an entourage. They've got maids. They've got guards. They've got a confessor who's often of a rank of bishop. Uh, so they are an island of Rusian culture, a real uh, embassy in the heart of another kingdom. And in fact, some historians in the West have pointed out that it's not just in the heart of the kingdom because the embassy is located in the bedchamber of the king. Right. So this is a really interesting uh, case where you've got influence. Uh, I use the example a lot of Anna Yaroslavna, the daughter of Yaroslav the Wise, who marries the French king Henry. Uh, and if you look at the Capetian royal family in France, they traditionally vacillate between Hugh and Robert as the names. In fact, Henry himself was a second son. So, you know, Henry wasn't even supposed to be king. But Henry and Anna's firstborn son is Philip. And it seems quite clear that Philip is brought into, as a name, brought into the French royal family via Anna Yaroslavna. And so this is a great example of influence. We can also see Anna because she signs her name. And she signs her name Anna Regina. So we've got Latin Queen Anna, but she writes it in Cyrillic script. So we see evidence then of female literacy, not just of this woman in a Latin context. She's learned the Latin language enough to write Anna Regina, but also she must have learned, and I hate the expression must have, but she most likely learned the Cyrillic script while she was still in Eastern Europe, while she was still in Rus. Does this, does this also poll Rus into the more geopolitical issues between the rivalries between various kingdoms in Europe and vice versa? Does it pull European royalty into the the machinations of Russian rulers? 100% it does. I mean, I, I wrote a book a few years ago, Conflict, Bargaining, and Kinship Networks in Medieval Eastern Europe. And it's exactly about this very thing, about how these marital arrangements create a web of alliances, or at least a web of potential alliances. And we see great examples like 1146, where we see multiple kinship networks arrayed uh, that involve almost all of what we today would think of as Central or East Central Europe, inclusive of Rus, uh, to fight in multiple different conflicts. And it's all based on these kinship ties. Those kinship ties are really the sine qua non for creating alliances, military alliances, peace alliances, any of that sort of thing. Now, what happens? You know, the Rus is no longer with us. It hasn't been with us for a really long time. What leads to its decline and eventual collapse in the, in the 12th, 12th and 13th century? Yeah, and that's a great question. And uh, I'm going to totally hijack it for one minute to talk about how the decline is really part of the problem with our modern perception, because we really like countries that map onto countries. And so medieval England is now England. Medieval France is now France. Rus is not Russia. And it's also not Ukraine. Um, it is its own thing, right? It is a medieval polity. Right. So I think that's important to acknowledge off the bat. But why does it fall apart? Well, exactly the same centripetal forces you were talking about earlier in terms of the succession practices. We see different regions not wishing to be included in a Kievan centric world anymore. And so particularly Vladimir Suzdal in the northeast, uh, they, they begin to go their own way under Andrei Bogolubsky and then Vesyevlid uh, Bolshoyogonezdo. They begin to say, you know what, I'm not interested in Kiev anymore. We're just going to build our own territory up here and focus on that. 
And once that model is really created, we see similar situations in Novgorod. We similar, see similar situations in the Southwest with Felicia Valenia. Uh, and this is going to lead to multiple regions simply not uh, choosing not to participate, uh, pardon me, choosing not to participate anymore in the center. Add to that two other factors both in the 13th century. In the 13th century, we see the arrival of the Mongols from the east, and that's going to cause mass chaos and depopulation and a variety of other things. But we also see the Fourth Crusade sack Constantinople in 1204. And Earlier, we were talking about Christianity in medieval Europe. It's really 1204, and not even at that moment, but that is what the start is for the differentiation between Eastern and Western Christians. 1204 is the moment when the Latin papacy says the only right Christians are Latin Christians. All other Christians are heretics. And we get in 1222 the banning of Orthodox churches in, in Christian territories. And that's going to lead to a perception among Russian Christians that, wait, hey, they're talking about us, right? They think we're not Christians. And so that's going to really create that divide. And, and so the 13th century, I think, is when you can begin seeing differences. And yet, and yet, despite that, in Galicia Volinia, we still see deep ties with Poland, with Hungary, and those are territories that become part of the Polish-Lithuanian Commonwealth. Another early modern, late medieval and early modern polity that is understudied today, Robert Frost, of course, has done uh, you know, amazing work on this. But it, it doesn't map onto a modern country, and so it is not studied as much. And it is a multi-religious country with pagans, with Latins, with Orthodox, and, and everything seems to work out. The mention of the, the Mongols, of course, brings up the question. I mean, we've been talking mostly about its Rus's integration with, with Europe. But what about Rus's integration and relations with, say, the emerging, emerging Muslim world or even the East? Yes, certainly. Well, Don Ostrovsky has written about this a lot with his uh, Muscovy and the Mongols. And uh, the two of us have co-authored a book that's coming out uh, in spring called The Ruling Families of Rus. And we talk about uh, the history of Rus via these families. In that, we deal in particular with uh, the that issue that you're, you're suggesting. What role do the Mongols play? And you know, following the lead of Muscovy and the Mongols, we talk about an integration uh, between, for instance, the, the Muscovite family of the Danilovici and the Mongols to oppose the, the family ruling in Tver and some of these other places. And, and then the way that Tver reaches out to Lithuania to build their own ties. So we're still talking about an interconnected Rus Right? But we're just talking about it as uh, these various subfamilies of the greater Volodymyrovichi clan charting their own paths and making their own alliances. And for Muscovy, for instance, that is getting into bed with the Mongols and using them or they use each other to gain power. Now, you know, somebody might say this is all fine and interesting, Christian. I mean, this is great stuff, but why, why is it important? Why do we need to know this? When you have to tell people why medieval, you know, Russia or this medieval period is important, and, and particularly to think of it in terms of it being integrated both in, with the West and, and obviously with the East, uh, what, do you, what do you say? Why is it so important? 
what I start with is the war. And this this has really changed since February, although I've been talking about it, you know, since the 2014 invasion and things like that. And what I talk about is our conception of Europe. Um, I've been writing a lot more historiography lately, and this is one of the questions I deal with is in the historiography, we have created a divided Europe. The idea of a Byzantine Commonwealth has essentially given permission to Western medievalists to exclude Eastern Europe from their sphere of influence. It's therefore created a divide in Europe where, mirroring the Iron Curtain, there's one side of this that is European, code for Western, and one side of this that is not European, not Western. And since 1991, many different countries have tried to align their scholarships with the West. And we see this via the creation of labels uh, like East Central Europe and things like that. I mean, even though that goes back to Mazarek and earlier, it's being utilized as a way to avoid being labeled Eastern Europe. But if we accept the premises that I'm offering here, that medieval Europe stretches all the way uh, from the Atlantic Ocean to the Urals and from Scandinavia to the Mediterranean, and Rus is part of that Europe. If we start with that as our basis of Europe and we project Europe forward, what does that do for Ukraine in the 21st century, especially in 2022? If Ukraine is viewed as historically part of Europe, that shifts our ideas about whether it deserves defending, whether it deserves membership in the EU, whether it deserves membership in NATO. Uh, that shifts our whole perception of the way we view the modern world. And so I really think medieval history matters because even though we don't tend to think of it in the forefront of our mind, it forms a theoretical basis for how we view uh, the European world. And I mean, you could even also include Russia in this too, right, as being part of that European, wider European civilization and not outside of it. Um, but, you know, I was, I don't know, I was really struck by something you said a little while ago where you said, Rus is not Ukraine and it's not Russia. Now, I would imagine a lot of people don't want to hear you say something like that. But we, we know that the, the contest and the war and the, the, the relations between Ukraine and Russia for the last decade or so have really kind of, one of the things that's spiraled, spiraled around are these historical claims to Kiev and Rus. Um, and, you know, as you just said, that this idea of Rus, it sits, it's kind of an in-between place. It's a border place. It's also a way for us to draw in borders inside and outside these civilizational spaces that we've created as constructs for us to interpret and act in the world. Um, I want you to elaborate on this, this intervention that you made where Rus is not Ukraine and not Russia. And, you know, what should we do with Rus then and this larger conflict over who owns it? I think we need to do two things, and I think one of them is we need to acknowledge that medieval Europe is not modern Europe, and that modern kingdoms and modern countries are not medieval countries. So just because there is a France today, and there is something that had a label France in the Middle Ages, it doesn't make them the same. Uh, in fact, you know, early modern scholars have talked a lot about how Napoleon really made France, right? That's when France became French. That's 1800. 
So, I mean, this is not a medieval concept. That's an early modern, heck, that's even a modern concept. Um, we see the same thing with Iberia. Leon and Castile, Aragon, Catalonia, um, and even by 1492, we're still talking about the Spains. In the 16th century, we're talking about the Spains. We don't see a Spain until the early modern period. We really, really are anachronistic in so many ways in which we conceptualize the past and we take what we know and read it back into time. So first thing I would say is that we acknowledge that the medieval past is a different place, uh, that it is a place where they don't need to have modern mapping of countries onto polities. The second is that it can be, Rus, it can be the basis for Ukraine and for Russia and for Belarus. Um, the Roman Empire is claimed as a heritage by numerous different medieval European polities, and that's okay. Right, They don't need to try and solely claim it one versus the other, although occasionally that does happen. Um, but Rus can be the shared cultural heritage of all three of those places. And of course, the Belarusians often get left out of this, um, but it is, it is also their cultural heritage as well. That was Christian Raffensperger. Christian Raffensperger is the Kenneth E. Ray Chair in Humanities and, and Professor of History at Wittenberg University. He's published several books on the history of Kievan Rus and medieval Eastern Europe, including Reimagining Europe, Kievan Rus in the Medieval World, 988 to 1146, Ties of Kinship, Genealogy and Dynastic Marriage in Kievan Rus, The Kingdom of Rus, and Conflict Bargaining and Kinship Networks in Medieval Eastern Europe, Christian studies present the Rusian state not as a principality or a collection of principalities, but as one of the realms of a larger medieval Europe. And I encourage you to check out his Rusian genealogical database, which presents a new genealogy of the Rusian royal family, the Rurikids, and their connections with other royal families throughout Europe. I'm your host, Sean Guillory, and this is the SRB Podcast. The SRB Podcast is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh and listeners like you. If you like this podcast, please share it on social media and tell your friends, family, or anyone else who might be interested in what we do here. Also, feel free to drop me a line on Facebook, Twitter, or the srbpodcast.org and let me know what you think of the show. And as always, the SRB Podcast would love to have your support. This is a nonprofit educational endeavor, and that means it re relies on the support of individuals and other institutions to keep it completely free to listeners and free from paid advertisements. Please help me keep it that way. Go to srbpodcast.org, become a monthly patron, and help keep this show going. Until next time, bye.